I'm joined today in a two-part episode with my friend Anthony Inarino. Anthony is a fellow speaker, coach, teacher, and author of three books. His most recent book is what we're going to be talking about a fair amount today, which is Eat Their Lunch, and he posts daily at thesalesblog.com. Anthony and I share a lot of ideas about integrity-based selling. We'll talk about dealing with competition, selling value versus price, and opportunity ID and conversion. You're going to learn a ton from Anthony Inarino. You and I know each other and uh, only through email. We've never really had a conversation like this, but I'm aware of your work. And um, and certainly and I'm aware with, of yours, yeah. And with, with same-side selling. So I, I would love to talk about uh, that philosophy with you. And we're doing this uh, conversation together. It's going to go in multiple places. So this is not going to be an interview. It's kind of going to be an interview, but it's more just going to be a conversation. So people listening who are used to an interview format from me, uh, this is just talking to a peer and uh, somebody who I've watched. And so I understand some of what you do, but I'd be more interested in hearing that. So that that's all the setup I think we're going to give people, and we're just going to talk to each other. Well, you know what? I think we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about eat their lunch. I mean, the the interesting part is that though, though you and I have never spoken, I don't believe, at the same event, and and though we know each other, you know, online and we've had maybe one conversation over the years, it's interesting because in me seeing your work and you seeing my work, hopefully you feel the same in that philosophically we share a lot of the same principles and that there are yes. people there are people who teach devious methods, if you will, and then there are those of us um there's a smaller group of us who teach integrity based approaches. And so there's never something I read from you where I'm like, oh, I can't believe Anthony said that. So I was like, oh, man, I, I as I was reading Eat Their Lunch, I was like, man, this is this is so dead on. There's there's nothing that I read and say, mm, I don't know about that. It's it's funny because if you're principles based, I mean, what what I write about is uh, love your mom, apple pie. You know, there, there there's not there doesn't tend to be an opposite side to some of the principles. Uh, one, uh, you know, when you get write books, you get different people who review things, and uh, one of them said nothing new in this book and eat their lunch, which I disagree with. But I was thinking, well, probably not new. But if you want to look at the book where there was nothing new, the first book I wrote, the only sales guide you'll ever need. There's literally nothing new in that. That is a, a <laughs> I mean, literally, I reference other books that you should read about each chapter in the book because it's so not new. And we know all these things, and that's sort of the point, is that we know some things. Like, you you should be disciplined about your work. You should have a good attitude. And and I don't know where, you know, what's the counter argument? No, you should be sporadic in your efforts if you want to produce good results and have a bad attitude. There's no other side to some of these things. And and even your just the title, you know, same-side selling suggests something about the relationship with the client that already tells you half the story right there. Yeah, it's it's interesting because my co-author Jack Quarles is a guy who spent two decades in purchasing and procurement, and so to our knowledge, this is the only book that's been written about sales from the perspective of the buyer and the seller. And so, taking that approach and thinking about what are the adversarial traps that pit buyer and seller against one another? What's actually going through the buyer's mind? And it's interesting because there are times where I'll be speaking at an event, I'll bring someone on stage, and someone will say, "Well, but I don't know if that I don't know if that really applies because 
I don't think the buyer is thinking that. And it's like, well, actually, in the research I've done with over 10,000 CEOs and executives and people in purchasing roles, this is exactly what's going through their mind. But maybe you have a larger sample size. And people are like, well, <laughs> yeah. no. It's like, well, OK, here's the thing. Just because we think they're thinking something differently doesn't mean they are. And if as soon as you can figure out how people make and approve decisions, then you can start to align your approach that candidly just makes it more comfortable and transparent for them. It's a, it's an interesting metaphor. And when I was uh, younger, uh, not all that much younger, I practiced a Japanese martial art called Aikido, which was uh, terrible for my knees <laughs> because you get thrown to the ground a lot. And uh, then I saw my uncle have a, a knee surgery and I thought I probably don't want that. So I decided to do something else instead. But the very first thing in Aikido is to take the other person's perspective. So when somebody comes in with conflict, you literally turn the opposite way that you would think you should turn, specifically because you're now going the same direction, and and that's where the leverage is. And I, I've literally, you know, having sold, you know, since I was 15 years old, many many times have gotten up and moved to the other side of the table, and, and sat down and had the conversation, sitting with things in front of me with the client, where I'm literally on the same side of the table, because you are you are trying to help work together to produce a better result than the the clients getting before you show up. You're really working on the same problem to begin with. Yeah, the, the if you believe that. Yeah, the, you know what the the, meta, the metaphor we use is a puzzle metaphor that says, look, if you're on the same side of the table trying to put a puzzle together, at some point you might realize that your pieces don't actually line up. And and at that point, you know, if you think about it, one of the biggest challenges that people in sales face is this this rejection issue and this fear of rejection. And if you peel that back and discover that, look, more than half of half the people you meet with are not going to be a good fit for one reason or another, then when you, quote, don't get the sale, if you've done it right, then you've just mutually discovered that you're not the best fit for each other. And it, it tends to make it so that people say, you know what, gee, I went out and met with these people, and it turns out we weren't the best fit, and they weren't the best fit for us. And then when, you, when you're successful with a sale, if, you, if we use that term, then all of a sudden it's like, hey, we turned, it turned out that we discovered we had a really good fit together. And mm -hmm. it just changes the dynamic from the pursuit to, look, we're just trying to see if there's a good fit together. And as we're doing this second edition of same side selling, what we discovered over the last you know four or so years was you know what there's some things that we didn't have in the book that in working with many clients and organizations realized you know what people are starting to use these other elements that we assumed were in the book but they're not in the book so we need to put them in there. What are some of those elements? Well, so there's a, a shortly after same side selling came out, I was speaking at an event. And I was talking about different types, how people make decisions and how you should navigate a conversation with a potential client. And, and the people, people I was dealing with said, well, but, but help me understand this again. I said, look, there's really four key components to this. And, and I said, let's think of it this way. And I drew a vertical line down the center of a page, a horizontal line across the page, 
broke the page into four quadrants. I said, so that's, we want to capture. That's because you you have to be able to draw a, a two by two matrix like that, <laughs> exactly. or you you lose your your uh, membership card into the consultants union, right? Exactly. The consultants union, the speaker union, like all of a sudden the quote thought leadership card goes away. They take it away. Yes. And um, so so I just I wrote okay, so we're going to capture information about their issue or what problem they're trying to solve in the upper left. In the upper right, we're gonna we're gonna take notes about what the impact is of not solving that and how important it is to solve this. And then we need to have a, a, a common or shared vision of what the results look like. So on the lower left, we're going to write about what the results are. And then we want to make sure we're not missing anybody. So on the lower right, we're going to take notes about who else needs to be involved um, and, and who we might be missing in this discussion. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at this, at this sheet of paper, and I'm like, huh, that's pretty insightful. And two months later, this this client of mine says, "Oh, just so you know, that's we created a template out of that, and that's how our team takes notes now." And My lawyers will be in touch with you next week. Exactly, and and now that becomes that becomes what we call the same side quadrants, and many an organization has used this. And the testimonials on the book now are. Gee, here's a company that went from 17 million to 100 million in two years, and here's a company that went from 20 um, percent of their team to 95 percent of their team hitting their numbers within a year. And it's using this very simple construct that just keeps people focused in a meeting. I, sim- simple, but but powerful. And I'm just thinking about the the tie into you know my work and understanding that there are other stakeholders and acknowledging that and understanding that there has to be a compelling reason where you agree that this is the strategic outcome, which I'm calling level four. Yep. But it's it's interesting to me how uh, without ever coordinating or talking about our work, you just find a certain truth. You know, when you're out dealing with reality and the reality of client acquisition, there are things that bubble up and it ends up going into a framework so people have a way to to touch these things and say, wait a second, we need to do the work to know what this is that's compelling enough to change and do these things. And we also need to consider that there's a whole bunch of people that are going to get uh, their world changed when this happens, you know, and, and not everybody's going to agree with us that this is the right thing to do. And some of them are going to have to either get on board or stand down to move it forward. But when they get left out, things don't tend to change very well. Absolutely. I think, I mean, one of the things that, that struck me <clears throat> when I was reading Eat Their Lunch is your approach to really dealing in a competitive situation. And it's something that resonated so well with me, and I'd love for you to talk about it, which is this notion of, look, don't speak negatively about the competition, and it's not about price. Right. It's uh, it's it's interesting because I continue to tease uh, salespeople and audiences that you know if you go to your competitor and you say, "Listen, Ian, you're first off, you're lying about what you do. Your results aren't that good. So I'm going to ask you to stop lying. And second, I'm going to ask you not to continue using your irrational pricing because there's no way you can be profitable, and you're really not doing your company a good service here either. So I'm going to ask you to stop doing these things." <laughs> I mean, what, what's the likelihood that you get a, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> We're not going to use this pricing anymore. We want to make sure it's a level playing field for you. There's nothing you can do about your com- your competitor. You just can't do anything about them. You should know them. You should know, you know, how they compete. So, you know, look, if they're, if you know that they're always going to have the lowest price and it's an irrational pricing, difficult thing for people to really provide success for the client when their pricing doesn't allow them to invest – well, then you need to address that with the client going into it. You don't have to ever talk about the competitor, but you can say, 
when the investment level tends to go beneath the kind of thing that we're going to show you as a solution, you're going to be giving up these outcomes. So you can at least start educating them, but you can't ever do anything about the competitor. And the, the primary thesis of this book is that you have to create greater differentiated, compelling value and understand how to help people change if, in fact, you want to displace a competitor. Uh, they don't really have much to do with the equation because you can never do anything about them anyway. Yeah, you know, it's 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 totally true. And I just think that the, the, the way I often describe it is let your competition worry about you and you worry about your customer. <laughs> yeah. You're going with the uh, General James Mattis, what keeps you up at night? Yeah. Nothing. I keep other people up at night. That, <laughs> that, that's a good that's a good uh, line. I'm going to keep that. <laughs> You know, I, I just I, and the the other the other thing that struck me is the the notion of focusing on the results or value. I mean, it's something that is central to what what I teach. And I know it's central to what you teach also. This whole idea of level four value that that you teach and that you talk about and eat their lunch and that you talk about on stage is this whole notion of how do we make it so that the client is focused on the results or outcome not just focused on price. So when people say, oh, my client's just focused on price, my response usually is, well, it's probably because you haven't given them a reason to focus on anything else. And the trap that oftentimes I see sales professionals, in some cases wildly successful professionals fall into, is when they talk to a potential client, the client says, well, we're working with this current vendor right now. And the, the rep says, well, how much are you paying? And it's like, well, now you've just told them, now you've just telegraphed that all they should care about is price instead of, well, so zero to 10, how would you rate the results that you're getting? And if they say, oh, it's a 10, it's amazing, then you might have not necessarily a great opportunity. But if they say, well, it's like a seven, really, why a seven? Well, we're not getting this, we're not getting this. Okay, now you have something worth talking about. When they say 10, I think you got to go spinal tap and say, mm, ours goes to 11. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> There's something else. You know, it's interesting about price. And I, I often hear sales managers say, uh, my people are terrible at negotiating. And then I always get to say, I think they're outstanding negotiators. And they say, why would you say that? And I say, because every time they run back and negotiate a concession with you, they win. And they go back and give their client the discount. And at some point, they're like, wait, it's us. I'm like, no, they're great negotiators. Just turn them around and have them negotiate the other direction. Yeah. But, but, but it is interesting because price, for, for price is, is such the boogeyman in deals. And you're always going to be asked about price. You're always going to be asked. And when you think about it, if you work for a company, they're always going to ask if they can't get a better price because they're trying to be responsible to their company. And I've had this, this conversation a couple times in the last week about the fairness of variable pricing in, in B2B organizations, especially with service organizations. And they're like, well, we have different pricing for different people. So how do you how do you know what's the right price? And the reason we have variable pricing is because where different levels of value can be created, then you might need a different investment to do that. And you're trying to maintain a profitability that allows you to invest in that. But it, it's uh, it's interesting for people because they think that the lowest price wins, but it, it tends not to win. It, it tends to be other factors with a good salesperson. Most, in, in my experience, most companies do not try to buy lowest price. But that said, there are, you know, a subset. If their primary customer is Walmart, they're going to be very concerned about your pricing because their business model or their strategy. 
But for most people, they're trying to generate a better result. And if you can prove to them that you can get them a greater uh, outcome, then most responsible business people, if you're high enough up in the organization, are going to be willing to invest in that. And, and, that's the, and that's the operative piece is if you're having conversations at the right levels and if you're talking about results – so, for example, I've, I've got a, an organization who I've spoken for who one of their primary channels is Walmart and big box stores. And so historically, they would say, well, but they're not going to buy from us because we're not less expensive than the other alternative. And I said, well, so what's the – how many returns do they get and customer service issues do they get with the other company's products? And how come yours are more expensive? Well, ours are more expensive because they last longer. They're more durable. And it's the type of brand that leads to other up, you know, other cross-sell opportunities. Okay, well, so if the buyer understood that, do you think they would still be focused on the price? And it was interesting because – it required a, a recalibration of how they were thinking. They approached their client from a different perspective and said, look, here's what we'd like to do. We'd like to test this in this one market because we're convinced that here's what you would see. You would see fewer returns. You would see these additional cross-sales, but we don't want you to take our word for it. So let's test it in these stores. And if you get these results, then we can roll it out elsewhere. And the client was a little bit hesitant. And then said, okay, we'll test it. And then once they got it, now they're they're across the board 30% higher than their competitor, yet the big box stores aren't flinching and are now paying dramatically more because they focused on the results, not just the price of the sale. Yeah, and that's the difference between price and cost. Yeah. And and some people have to be taught there's a difference between price and cost. And when you start saying, what does the return cost you? What does the return cost you in the way of people buying a second time? You know, what does it cost for you to have to ship things back and do these things? And you, you realize, well, the, the price isn't really the factor here. It's the cost that go along with it. And 30% more apparently was, was enough for somebody to say it actually costs us less and we make more money when we pay more for something. And that's true for a lot of people's solutions, although I don't think they look at it that way until they, they start to see that the, the value that they create is – I have a higher price, but I have a lower lower overall cost. Yeah, I wrote about that in the book with shoes, just because I was a huge Johnston and Murphy guy for a lot of years, and then the quality's not so great anymore. So you can buy a pair of shoes, you know, for two hundred and fifty dollars, and they last a year, or you can go to Allen Edmonds and buy a four hundred and fifty dollar pair of shoes that last for ten years. Yeah, you know, overall the the price is a lot higher. And when I walked into Allen Edmonds, Mike Weinberg actually sent me there. I was like, man, four fifty for a pair of shoes. Uh two fifty seems like a lot. Yeah. But but they last and they're they're just so much better manufactured that it makes sense to invest more because they last longer. And right. and those are the kinds of things that business people and salespeople specifically don't spend enough time thinking about. What are all the additional costs and how do you position yourself? Yep. Yeah, I, I often say price matters most when the seller believes price matters most. And so if the person doing the selling believes that it's all about price, then all the questions they ask, all the comments they make signal that it's all about price. But if you start focusing on results like you teach with level, level four value, and then you say to somebody – Look, my guess is that if we don't achieve these results and outcomes, it probably doesn't matter 
how much it costs because it's not a good deal, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. So what would prevent us from getting these results? Because if, we, if we're not both confident we can get the results, then it's probably not worth doing. And now we're having a conversation about results and outcomes, which if I achieve that result for you, it's worth it at any price. I mean, let's face it, when it comes to speaking in events, the, the, the world has many, many options that would cost a whole lot less than you or me speaking at their event. But? But they, it, once they believe that, okay, if Anthony keynotes our event, if Ian keynotes our event, if Phil Jones keynotes our event, we're going to get an integrity-based message that is going to move the needle for our team. And if that happens with these 50 people, 500 people, 2,000 people, five, whatever it is, and just a portion of them get the results we think they can and should, then this pays for itself a thousand times over. Easy, easy. You know, then, it, then it's like, oh, this is this is a trivial investment comparatively. Now, it, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting um, model because you look at it and say, gee, someone's getting paid that much to speak for forty five minutes for an hour. Well, actually, the the way I always look at it is. Well, with a speaker, it's it's you're not paying for the hour, you're paying for the experience, expertise, and ability to deliver that message in an hour. I, I th- and again, it's that's the difference between the price and cost, you know, and that that is a, a tough thing for some people to understand. But there is a range, you know, of people who are trying to get a certain outcome, and the integrity based message is uh, for many the most important part of that equation. What are they going to hear, and who are they going to hear it from? Have you followed a, a low integrity speaker? <laughs> Not intentionally. Oh, you mean you mean on stage? On stage, yes. Um, you know what? I have, and I don't want to. I don't want to say who it is. I'm not, I don't, I'm not asking I, any I names. I'm just asking if you've had the experience. Um, I have, in fact. Um, there was an event I spoke at a while back where, um, where it was, it, it wasn't, it wasn't even a main stage keynote I was delivering, and it was it was for for a um, a friend's event. And the person who was facilitating the the tract I was in, there was maybe I don't know a thousand people in the room. Um, it was a, a larger event, but there's maybe a thousand people in this room. It's a big and, event, and uh, yeah, it was a pretty big event. And um, so yeah, when the breakout's a thousand, that gives you an idea. And so the person who was the was running that track knew me, knew the prior speaker, and the prior speaker was talking about different ways to, in essence, deceive your client and how you can get information about them that they wouldn't know that you could get. And it was just a lot of um, just things that kind of were making my skin crawl. And after the person spoke, you saw a lot of people getting up and the and the person facilitating the room said, yeah, our, our next speaker, it's going to be dramatically different than that <laughs> session. And I just thought it was so funny the way, the way he said it. It's going to be dramatically different. <laughs> you know, why, why would you start a relationship off with, with anything that would take away from trust when we know that trust is the foundation of every relationship you have? It's, it's interesting to me that people still uh, talk about and do things that would take away from trust, you know, specifically. And, and I've, I've had a few phone calls in the last couple months, and I'm, I'm sort of just keeping track of these. But I got one uh, yesterday from somebody who has a, a radio kind of thing that they that's now on TuneIn and it's on the Internet. And they wanted to offer me a free 12-minute interview on one of the radio stations. 
And whenever anybody wants to offer you something for free, you know it's not for free. Uh, if you're a grown up, you know that. So I said, hang on. I said, let me understand what's your business model. And they said, well, there's no obligation here. And I said, there's no obligation to what? And what what they really want me to do is host a podcast or a radio show and go out and sell advertisers to to pay for the show so that they could they could manage and produce the show and and put it on their channel. But but the starting with the free uh, is is a violation of trust right out of the gate. And a few months ago, I got a call from Hilton that said they wanted to give me you know four days at a resort. Well, you don't want to give me four days at a resort. You want to sell me a timeshare. Yeah. But I, I don't understand why not say something like Anthony. Listen, we've been listening to your podcast. We think that you can probably sell enough ads to have a profitable model on ours. Can I share with you how that might look? Yeah, that, that would be a different conversation. Exactly. Okay, so you're starting with what you're honestly trying to do. You're not trying to deceive me so that you can give me a pitch later on where you've created some sort of uh, a reciprocity that I'm supposed to now have a conversation because you gave me the eight minutes. I, I don't understand why you start there. I mean, the integrity and your your name and your character is what people are buying. And especially if you're going to have a long-term relationship with someone you want to start with, uh, one, the greatest value you can create and also being somebody worth doing business with in the first place. And the, the reason I did the, the three books in the order that I did, the first one is really be somebody who's doing business with in the first place. You know, If you're not somebody that people want to work with and want to buy from because you're resourceful, you take initiative, you're accountable for what you sell, you're making selling a lot harder by not letting people know what you really are. Oh yeah, absolutely. And the thing is that if if you don't, it, oftentimes the seller doesn't even realize the value they deliver. And this whole notion of people doing something dishonest up front, the one thing that I always I always point to is, look, someone wasn't born thinking that was a good idea. The unfortunate reality is somebody taught them to do this, right? So someone said, look, here's here's the approach we take. What you do is you call in this executive. And you say to their assistant, oh, yeah, we're friends. Just put me through. He'll know who it is. And then when you get to that person, they realize that you've now lied, lied. to their assistant. Like why – in my prior business, I grew a business that that exceeded a billion dollars in value and was very fortunate to, to, to run a, a company that size. We had offices in 12 different countries. But I would get these calls and someone would – would somehow circumvent my assistant. And I would I would just say to them flat out say, okay, so so the way you got to me was you lied to somebody to get through. Well yeah, but now I got to you. Great. Why would I ever do business with you now? Right. You just told me who you are. Exactly. So so you lied to me now. I'm not sure when you're gonna lie to me again, but I'm not willing to wait and find that out. Right. And, and you're, you're exactly right. So that for those two examples I gave, those are actually – that's their business model. I mean every rep is doing the same thing and yeah. they have been taught that. They don't – and I could tell that the person talking to me when I addressed it uh, felt bad about it. You know, and, yeah. and that's because most people don't feel good about lying and, and unless you're a sociopath and exactly. you're okay. But most of us don't. Anthony brings so much great value. I encourage you to pick up his latest book, Eat Their Lunch. Um, I've really enjoyed reading it. There's some great content there. And there aren't that many other people who share this integrity-based selling approach. Be sure to join us for part two, where we'll continue our conversation with Anthony.
Remember, this show gets direction from you, the listener. If there's a guest you think I should have on the program or a topic I should cover, just drop me a note to ian at ianaltman.com. Have an amazing week, add value, and grow revenue in a way everybody can embrace, especially your customer.